Good morning. We are going to be continuing to read in the book of Isaiah. If you turn to chapter 6 of Isaiah, that is where we will be spending the majority of our time this morning. The book of Isaiah is a very interesting book. It contains prophecies and visions. It's going back and forth between these visions of coming destruction and judgment and also visions of hope that there is a remnant of of Israel that uh, that would continue. Um, if one of the questions is why why are there visions of destruction and judgment? Well, if you remember back in the uh, earlier in the Old Testament, when the um, the old covenant law was given through Moses, Um, There were promises that came along with the law. One of those promises uh, was if they obeyed the law, that there would there would be blessing. They would be able to be in the presence of of God there in in Israel near to the temple. Uh, But the uh, there was also a promise of cursing. If they did not obey the law, they would be uh, sent away in exile. They would be taken captive by their enemies. And in Isaiah, that's what the visions of um, judgment include, is this warning that there is judgment that is coming. Uh, if the people do not repent of their uh, their continued sins against God, Isaiah he through the book he he exposes the sins of his culture he denounces them um, he but he also gives a hope that there there is a redemption for a remnant but the the question arises as you're as you're reading um, is uh, so there, there's this rebellious people. They're enslaved in in idol worship. They're enslaved in their trespasses and sins. How could this rebellious people? How could they possibly uh, become uh, the righteous remnant that is talked about in in the book? How could they proclaim uh, the glories of God to the nations around them if everyone is enslaved in? Uh, idolatry if they're going into judgment and in chapter six what we have is this vision of where God calls the prophet to proclaim his word uh, to the nations and this this personal experience of Isaiah's calling uh, to proclaim God's word to the nations it serves as a model for how Israel, rebellious Israel, could be reconciled with God uh, and given their mission to proclaim God's glory to the nations. And so these insights uh, from Isaiah's calling, they should also influence how every Christian views our own calling to proclaim God's glory to the nations. So let's start reading. We'll start reading in uh, verse one of Isaiah chapter six. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw also the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up, and his train filled the temple. Above it stood the seraphims. Each one had six wings. With twain he covered his face, and with twain he covered his feet, and with twain he did fly. And one cried unto another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. 
The whole earth is full of his glory. What I want us to see here is that because God is holy, he deserves to be worshipped by all of the creation. The the first verse gives us the time frame of when this is written. It's the year that King Uzziah died. So this is about 740 B.C. uh, for all you history buffs out there. Uh, So um, what's significant about this is that King Uzziah had been a strong military leader. And during his reign, the uh, the the surrounding nations had risen in military strength. And so you had. Uh, Assyria that had started to become a very powerful nation. And because King Uzziah was the strong military leader, it kept Assyria from invading uh, into into Israel. But King Uzziah, he violated the old covenant law regarding the king. He uh, he performed priestly duties and uh, he wasn't allowed to do that. And when he did that, he was stricken by, uh, stricken by the Lord with leprosy, and then he died. And so, this is a national emergency. What now is going to keep the Assyrians from invading the the nation? And in this vision, what we see is that even though this national emergency had happened, the Lord is still sitting upon his throne. God was still king. He's still ruling from his heavenly throne room. He's still displaying his unyielding sovereignty, his rule, his reign, his majesty, even though this horrible thing had happened to the nation. And above the sovereign Lord, there are the seraphims. So what are what are the seraphim? Seraphim, they are basically created angelic creatures. They are sinless. They were created to serve God in his presence. Uh, In the New Testament, they are called the Paul calls them the holy angels sometimes. And so there is a sense in which uh, we can see that there is a an awe and majesty about them. We'll talk about that in, in a little bit. But what they are doing is they are um, they are hovering above the throne. Each seraph utilizes its six wings and two are flying, two are hiding the face, two are hiding the lower parts. And uh, the reason that they are covering themselves is because in the presence of the Lord, even though these are the holy angels, they are sinless, righteous angels in God's presence. They are brought low before him. They are humbled before him. They cover themselves. They cannot look upon his glory that is radiating uh, from his presence. And this uh, thing, the saying that they call out, uh, holy, 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 they call to one another. It emphasizes that God has unparalleled holiness. He has infinite Holiness. And um, it also says that uh, his holy, his uh, his glory fills um, the, the whole earth. And so there's this idea that the holiness of God in the temple is an ama- in the heavenly temple. It's an amazing thing that brings the angels low, but it cannot be contained within heaven. It streams out of heaven. It fills the whole 
earth. God's holiness. What is God's holiness? Well, oftentimes when in English, uh, American English, when we're talking about holiness, we think righteousness or purity. But what does Isaiah mean when he says holy? Well, elsewhere in Isaiah, in Isaiah 40, verse 25, he also uses this term to talk about the Lord. And in Isaiah 45, he's talking about the the um, that the holiness of God cannot be compared. God cannot be compared to anything else in the whole universe. You could you could look far and wide. You can. Look at the, um, you can look at the creation itself. You can look at the stars in the sky. There is nothing in the entire universe that compares with God. His understanding is unattainable. His might is unending. His worthiness to receive worship extends from the seraphim in heaven as they recognize God's holiness, they proclaim his holiness. It also extends to every creature worldwide. Every creature witnesses the works of God. Uh, of God, every person from every nation knows that God exists. Paul says that they know that God exists because God shows them that He exists through the things that God has created. They are aware of His of His um, His eternal nature. They are aware of His. Uh, his his power that is uh, beyond compare, his glory permeates the whole earth. It fills the whole earth, the text says. He deserves to be worshipped by every man, woman, and child on this planet. From the person that has read the Bible, to the person who has no access to a Bible in their language, to the little child in the jungles in faraway South America, to the man on the mountain in Japan who has never met a missionary. They, God is deserving of worship from each and every person. And God's sovereignty, his kingship, his reign, his rule, is not just a general thing in this text. But it is a specific thing. He is called, in verse 3, the Lord of hosts. We could also translate this Jehovah of armies. The, the idea is that um, th- this title is very important because of the historical situation. Remember, Assyria was threatening to invade them. And in chapter 36, we we see the story of Assyria. They they come right up on the doorstep of Jerusalem. They are they're taunting the prophets. They're taunting God. They're saying, you know, we've steamrolled every other society that we have come upon. Their prophets said that their gods would protect them. And look at them. They're all destroyed. What makes you any different, Jerusalem? We are going to invade and destroy you also. And then in the next uh, the next day. They are, the army of Assyria is found dead, slaughtered by the angel of the Lord, the story says, at the doorstep of Jerusalem. This demonstrates that it is God, it is not the armies or the nations of the world, it is not their rulers. God has ultimate sovereignty. Military strength is incapable of hindering the sovereign plan of God. 
Now, in the course of history, many centuries later, Jesus, God the Son, became a human. He took humanity upon himself, human nature upon himself. He obeyed God's old covenant law, like the Israelites were not doing in this text. He obeyed it. He obeyed it even unto his death on the cross to atone for our sins as a substitute sacrifice for us. After three days, he resurrected from the dead. He demonstrated his authority. He even said I have, that he had been given all authority in heaven and on earth. That's part of the Great Commission. He has all authority in heaven and on earth. Therefore, go make disciples of all the nations. Today, Jesus is exalted as King of Kings, as Lord of Lords. Now, why do I bring up Jesus? It's because in John chapter 12, verse 41, the author says that Isaiah saw Jesus's glory and wrote about him. Now, what was going on in John 12 that the author would would bring that up? If you remember what what happened in Jesus's ministry. Jesus is going, he's proclaiming the good news, he's proclaiming the good news of this coming kingdom, he's um, you know, he's telling the giving his sermons, telling his parables, all these all these teachings. His teachings are accompanied by miracles, which prove that he had authority to say the things that he said. And even though he was preaching the good news, he was preaching himself. The people rejected him. He came to his own. His own received him not. Now, of course, there were there were some that received him and to them. He gave them the right to become become uh, children of God. But uh, most of the most of Israel, they rejected Jesus. Now, when Jesus was rejected, did it did it mean that somehow Jesus had a loss in authority? No. Jesus was still in charge in that situation. He is still sovereign Lord, despite people's unbelief. Jesus's authority in heaven and on earth remains unchanged, even when people reject him. And this gives us hope. This gives us hope in missions. Uh, when when we go to hard places in the world and we preach Jesus and there is most of the people are resistant to the Christian message, they may threaten us, they may become violent. Those risks should not deter us from obeying Jesus's command to make disciples of all nations. His authority has been demonstrated. He is still king of kings. He is still Lord of lords. And his his authority is demonstrated even here in the text of Isaiah when when Jerusalem was facing invasion and the angel of the Lord slaughtered the Assyrian army. This is the foundation for our command to make disciples, to willingly take Christ exalting risks to bring glory to his name among the nations. Jesus is Lord. He is sovereign Lord. So let's go back to the text in in chapter six of Isaiah. Remember the seraphim, the seraphim there in their sinless perfection. They are covering themselves. They're humbled, brought low in God's presence. 
They're worshiping him. They're declaring his holiness. Now, remember, the seraphim are sinless. And that's important because this is the right and correct sinless response to the presence of God is to proclaim God's holiness and sovereignty. And that is an example of how all creation uh, should react to the holiness of God, specifically as revealed in the person of Jesus. Every person should worship God through Jesus because he is holy and he is Lord. But there is a problem. Let's continue to read in verse four. And the posts of the door moved at the voice of him that cried and the house was filled with smoke. Then I said, woe is me, for I am undone. Because I'm a man of unclean lips and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. I want us to see that because God is holy, guilty sinners are in danger of judgment. Now the angelic creatures, they're, they're crying out God's holiness. But what we see in the vision is the temple trembles. The temple fills with smoke. Now, in Japan, where we live, we live in a seismic area, seismically active. We get earthquakes, okay? Maybe, uh, you know, we get them all the time. We get them maybe once, once a week. Every few months, we get kind of a big one. Some of those big ones are really, really scary when your whole house starts to shake and you're wondering, is the house going to come down on me? When the holiness of the Lord was proclaimed, the posts of the door moved. This is the foundation of the temple is moving. This is ominous. This is threatening. This is not a benign situation. And it fills with smoke. Of course, this is probably incense from the, um, because it's the temple. Signifies God's holy presence. Now, previous chapters in Isaiah, there was, there were these warnings of coming judgment that were given to the people. The people thought, you know, oh, you know, God's not going to judge us. We have all of these things that, that we have in our society that will allow us to escape God's judgment. And Isaiah proclaimed these woes, these warnings of judgment upon all of the things in society that the people were trusting in to escape God's judgment. Basically, Isaiah said to them, your judgment is sure. There is no way that you can escape God's judgment. But in God's presence, the um, the prophet, we would expect, you know, he sees the the seraphim crying, holy, holy, holy. I would expect him to join in the song, you know, like we did this morning. But that's not what we find. In God's presence, what he does is he realizes, oh, woe is unto me. I am in danger of judgment, the prophet says. He recognizes he deserves judgment. Now, it says because he has unclean lips. Now, this unclean lips, this is not merely some kind of ceremonial impurity. This is sin. This is iniquity that he's talking about. 
Isaiah and rebellious Israel, they were morally corrupt. They had broken God's moral law. They had knowingly broken it. They had taken, uh, they had served other idols. They, of course, made idols to, uh, the God of the Bible, and they also took the Canaanite idols and they served them as well in the same presence as as um, as the idol to uh, to God that they had had made. They had broken God's commandments. They had blasphemed the name of the Lord. His unclean lips, it merely reflects the sinfulness in his own heart. Now, centuries later, Jesus said similar things about the mouth. He said that it's not what goes into a person that defiles him. So it comes out of his mouth that defiles him. He said that in Matthew, Matthew 15. This implies that this, the sinfulness of humanity, one's sinfulness, it does not originate from external factors. It doesn't come from outside. You know, in, um, in, in America, uh, when, um, like commonly speaking, people see someone commit a crime. And they're like, oh, he must have had a bad upbringing. He must have had a bad environment. Must have been external influences that made him who he is. But that's not what Jesus taught. Jesus taught there's something wrong inside. It's our nature, human nature itself, that is fallen that is sinful. Of course, this stems all the way back to our first ancestor, Adam. Think about Adam. Think about his upbringing. He had the perfect upbringing. Think about his environment. Perfect environment. What did he do? He was told, you take that fruit, on the day you take that fruit, you will die. And he ate of the fruit. He ate of the forbidden fruit. And Adam was a representative for us all. You, me, all, every human ever lived. If they were in Adam's shoes, they would have done exactly the same thing that Adam did. We are all morally culpable. We're morally responsible for the sin of Adam. But it's worse than that because, yeah, we have the sin nature of Adam, but we know God's law, his moral law, each of us knows it in part. Each of our consciences agrees in part with the moral law. And we, we know what's right. We know what's wrong. We do what's wrong. We don't do what's right. We're all morally responsible. We have rebelled against God. So we have a, a problem with our nature. We are sinners by nature. And we are also sinners by choice. And likewise to Isaiah, um, you know, Isaiah, he calls the judgment upon himself. But when the prophet, uh, when the apostle Peter, when he realized who Jesus was, he recognized his own guilt. He fell down at the feet of Jesus and said, depart from me, for I'm a sinful man. O Lord. Since we're all sinners by nature and by choice, it would be foolish for us to assume that we could serve the Lord while remaining in our sinful state, our sinful condition. The prophet Isaiah, he recognized that due to God's holiness, due to the sinful nature of his people, national judgment was imminent, but also his own judgment 
was imminent. Now, it's interesting that in the text, he doesn't seek cleansing from God. Um, We don't find him crying out to the Lord to forgive him or anything like that. It seems to be that Isaiah had resigned himself to judgment. He realized judgment is coming. There's nothing that can be done. And also, like Israel, judgment was coming. There's nothing that can be done. How could Isaiah and his people possibly be restored to worship God and proclaim his glory among the nations if judgment is coming? And likewise, in present times, how can those who are spiritually dead in their transgressions and sins, those who, as the Apostle Paul stated, are accumulating God's wrath for the day of judgment, how can they be restored to worship God and proclaim his glory among the nations? How can that be done? How can people far away hear the gospel if we're all dead in our trespasses and sins from birth? You know, Christianity, uh, wider Christianity, speaking about Christianity in general, often focuses on God's love and the possibility of a relationship, a personal relationship with God. And those things are true. You know, in in general, God does love humanity. It doesn't mean that you're not going to hell. And God does, uh, you can have a personal relationship with God through uh, repenting of your sin and having faith in Christ as Jesus and Lord. But if you limit your understanding of God to those two things, it will distort your understanding of who God is. God is not merely a supportive friend. He is not merely, a, he's not a grandfather figure in the sky like a Santa Claus who wants to give you your every heart's desire. That is not who God is. God is holy. Holy, holy, holy. And we are rebels against his moral law. We deserve judgment from God. Our sinfulness comes from our nature, which we have inherited, and from our disobedience, deliberate disobedience. We have no right to God's love. We have no right to God's favor. People say, well, you know, I just wish that God would be fair. Do you want God to be fair? Do you know what would happen if God was fair? We would all be dead. We would be judged by God. What you, you don't want fairness. What you want is God's mercy. Because you deserve only judgment. Like Isaiah, in our default sinful condition, We have a desperate need for God to intervene by his grace and to give us salvation. And that is the urgent necessity of all of humanity. Let's continue to read. Verse six. Then flew one of the seraphims unto me, having a live coal in his hand which he had taken with the tongs from off the altar. And he laid it upon my mouth and said, Lo, this hath touched thy lips, and thy iniquity is taken away, and thy sin purged. 
I want us to see that because God is gracious, He provides an atonement that can restore sinners to worship Him. How could guilty Isaiah, part of guilty Israel, be restored to purity? How could they proclaim the message of the Holy God? Isaiah couldn't plead for God's favor. He couldn't earn it. He, like Israel, deserved exile. And in the midst of his realization that judgment was coming, a seraphim flew to him with a coal from the altar, touched it to his mouth, said that his guilt was taken away and his sin was purged. This piece of coal was a symbol of substitutionary atonement for Isaiah's sin. Now, atonement was Isaiah's only hope. Now, if you remember in the in the Old Testament, they had the, the temple sacrificial system. The, the sins of the people would be placed onto the animal. The animal would uh, be slaughtered as a, uh, a sacrifice to to pay for uh, the debt of sin. And um, ultimately, those those weren't, uh, you know, effect, effectual sacrifices. They had to be done over and over and over and over. And ultimately, they were just symbols that pointed forward to the coming work of Christ when Christ died once and for all uh, for the sins of his people. God requires substitutionary atonement to be reconciled to him. What prevents God from wiping us off the face of the earth in judgment? It is the good news that there is atonement. There is forgiveness of sin through the finished work of Jesus Christ. Jesus perfectly obeyed God's law unto his death to atone for our sins. I keep using this word atone. What does it mean, atone? Help me out. Basically, when, when Jesus went up the hill to Calvary, he, was, he bore the sins of his people and went up and onto the cross. He was bearing our sin in his body. And the greatest trade exchange ever happened on that cross. Jesus bearing our sins. He became sin who knew no sin so that we might be made the righteousness of God. What's that mean? When Jesus was on the cross bearing our sins, he suffered God's wrath and he died in our stead. But it doesn't just end there because His righteousness, the righteousness of Christ, the righteousness that had been proven by his perfect obedience is transferred. It is imputed to all who believe, all who trust in his atoning work for their salvation. Best trade ever. He suffered the wrath of God in our stead. We get his righteousness What did we do to deserve that? Nothing. Nothing. We deserved judgment. And God was gracious to those who have faith in his name. 
you haven't believed that good news. Repent of your unbelief. Repent of your sin. Trust in the finished work of Jesus for your salvation. You can be reconciled to God. You can have, you can enter into God's presence through Christ. But if you persist in unbelief, be warned. God's judgment is coming, friend. Judgment that you cannot escape. Just like Isaiah warned Israel that judgment was coming. Our our urgent mission is to proclaim to all the nations this glorious message that there is reconciliation through faith in the finished work of Jesus. Let's continue to read verse 8. Also, I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send? And who will go for us? Then said I, here am I, send me. And he said, go and tell this people, hear ye indeed, but understand not. And see ye indeed, but perceive not. Make the heart of this people fat, and make their eyes heavy, and shut their eyes, lest they see with their eyes, and hear with their ears, and understand with their heart, and convert and be healed. Then said I, Lord, how long? And he answered, Until the cities be wasted without inhabitant, and the houses without man, and the land be utterly desolate, and the Lord have removed men far away, and there be a great forsaking in the midst of the land, but yet in it shall be a tenth, and it shall return, and shall be eaten as a tail tree, as an oak whose substance is in them when they cast their leaves. So the holy seed shall be the substance thereof. I want us to see that because God is gracious, it motivates the proclamation of his glory, even to the most resistant people. Since Isaiah's sin had been atoned for, The prophet was restored. He was restored to the possibility of proclaiming God's word. But notice in the text that Isaiah wasn't merely restored. He was also motivated. He said, here am I, send me. What motivated Isaiah to go and preach the word of the Lord, even to a people that were historically unrepentant, even to a people that had become like the nations around them and had worshipped multiple gods and they were doing what was right in their own eyes rather than obeying God's law? And how will resistant unbelievers nearby, like your friends and family, that have you've told the gospel to them again and again and again and they still don't believe, How will unreached, resistant people groups far away, how will they hear the good news of Jesus and repent and believe? How will that happen? What will possibly motivate that? Well, it won't happen through false promises of mass conversions. 
It leads the proclaimer to disillusionment and to discouragement when sharing the gospel. You know, in Japan, there there are missionaries that come to Japan. Most of them leave. They do not stay because they proclaim and proclaim and proclaim and they don't see the results that they were hoping for. They could go to the Philippines and proclaim and like a thousand people in a day would, you know, have some kind of response to what they preached. How will the unreached resistant people groups hear? Well, how will the missionary who faces disappointment or temptation to leave and return home, how will he stick it out? How will you stick it out when people keep resisting your gospel message that you are teaching them? You need, as Christians, we need a true and realistic motivation that's endured, that, that, that is rooted in enduring resistance. That can endure the hardest kinds of resistance that we encounter when teaching God's word to resistant people. Isaiah, he had just received the gracious atonement from God. That's what motivated him. To proclaim the word to this resistant people. He wasn't compelled. He wasn't forced. It's not like God was reaching down from heaven and ah, go tell this people my word. That's not what was happening. He said, no, I'll go. I'll go. Send me. I'll go tell them. It was by it was driven by what God had already done for him. Beloved fellow Christians, when Jesus commands us to make disciples of all nations, our obedience is not compelled. It's not like we're being forced. No. Instead, it should be a joyful response to what Jesus has done for us. He died to atone for our sins. He reconciled us to himself. He gave us his righteousness He rose from the dead to empower us to obey his commands, to glorify him, to proclaim his mercy and grace. What glorious grace and mercy has God shown us? We should gladly give up anything that is holding us back and join together to proclaim God's mercy and grace, even to the most resistant peoples of the world. Our God is worthy of proclaiming even in the difficult parts of the world. Now, it's interesting to note in the New Testament, it's not Isaiah 6, 8 that is the verse that gets quoted. We like verse 8, but that's not the one that's quoted. It's verses 9 and 10 that get quoted. Why is that? Well, the resistance that the apostles faced the resistance that Christ faced was reminiscent of this deafening and blinding and hardening of the heart that's talked about in these verses. Despite the rejection that they encountered, the apostles, they did not lose hope. They had experienced firsthand the transforming power of God's grace in their own lives, and they continued to proclaim that truth knowing that they were offering it to the people that they were talking to. They were confident that they were glorifying God and offering salvation by preaching the gospel. And that gives us all hope 
as we evangelize the lost today. Many will resist. That's okay. It's part of the mission. But there will be some, and we praise the Lord for those some, that will, even among the resistant, there will be those whose God, where God reaches down and works a miracle in their hearts, where He intervenes by His grace, and they have faith in Christ. We look forward to joining them in worship one day, worshiping God for all of eternity. How long do we preach to the resistant? Well, that was the question that Isaiah asked. Lord, how long? Until judgment comes. Until judgment comes. That's the emptying of the cities and houses that he's talking about in his day. You know, when when Babylon came in and took the people in exile, that was judgment. What's the judgment we look forward to today? It's when Jesus returns. When he comes again, he will come to judge the living and the dead. That is how long we proclaim the glories of God in Christ. Let's pray together.